Welcome back to the Now Gallery podcast. In this episode, we bring you a live discussion with industry experts about how deeply important textiles are to African and Caribbean culture throughout history. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us here at Now Gallery. Um, for those of you who haven't uh, been to the gallery before, I'll just tell you a little bit about us. Um, we are a public arts platform. Uh, you're in North Greenwich, so southeast London, deep south, as I call it. And um, we are here tonight to celebrate uh, all kind of rich material um, histories across Africa and the diaspora. And there are many kind of shared uh, narratives that we're going to explore tonight. Uh, we're going to start by um, talking to Martine Henry, who's a milliner, and Daniela, um, who also worked al alongside um, Martine um, on a project with Stephen Jones, and they informed uh, the Cruise Collection for Dior. Um, and so we're just talking about um, cross-cultural exchange. I think we should just quickly go around the table, if that's okay, and just say who we are, um, and then we'll get you to start. Um, and Daniela will be doing also, um, she'll be tying a head wrap as well. So just if we quickly just introduce ourselves. Hello, my name's Martine and I am a London-based milliner. Hello, my name's um, Daniela. I'm a um, head wrap and gilet designer. Hi, my name's Christine and I'm a fashion designer and I use East African fabric in my collections. My name's Talika Kirkland and I'm the creative director of the Costume Institute of the African Diaspora. Hi, I'm Fiona. I'm very out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I'm Fiona. I'm an artist and historian and I run the platform Leo Caribbean. Hello, I'm Arietta and I'm an African fashion expert and enthusiast. We'll all kind of introduce a topic spend about five minutes discussing it and then we're going to have a joint kind of discussion we want everybody to kind of participate in it so firstly just talking about a bit about stephen jones um who's a well-known milliner uh milliner to the queen and a regular collaborator of dior and uh you know i think it's probably one of the first times he's um kind of taking taken on and you know um you guys as a, a an advisory role and helping to develop a specific aspect of the headdress to a collection so martine could you tell us uh well daniela actually if you start first because you're going to start to wrap while we talk throughout the evening so just talk a little bit about yourself and what you do i've told my name earlier and i said i'm a Gilly and um, head wrap um, designer. I studied at Saglaresco University, um, business and healthcare management. I have attended many events, and I recently collaborated with Dio on fashion show project in Morocco this year. To just to mention a few, talking about this um, head wrap and gile itself, um, made it's made is it's made up of African fabric, uh, namely um, wax. It's also called Ankara, and this is top clothes, are also called Ashoki and Kinky. So these um, wraps are made up of all these kind of African um, fabrics. So I'll be demonstrating, I'll be using these um, materials to demonstrate the head wraps. Thank you. Um, so Stephen asked me to put um, to connect him to a local um, stylist, a head wrap stylist. So got in touch with Daniela. So thank you so much, and you had a fantastic experience. Um, over to you, Martin. Hello. Um, so I am a milliner based in in London, and 
I, um, Stephen approached me, I used to work for him at his atelier, um, making hats for, for his collections. And I had been working in my own work with African wax print fabric. So I was really looking to develop um, a collection of um, hair accessories using wax. Um, prior to that, I had been making more sort of ascot style hats, but and I was making those for other milliners as well. And I didn't really relate to those as much, so I wanted to really push forward with the wax. And that's when um, Stephen approached myself and Daniela earlier this year for this collaboration with um, Dior. So you can see up on the screen a couple of the images. So the the show was based in Morocco and um, Dior have a long tradition of being in Morocco. Um, Yves Saleron, who was the designer for Dior after Christine Dior died, was born in, in Morocco. And the whole idea around the collection was about um, collaboration. So as well as myself and, and Daniela, there were um, collaborations with artists, not just fashion designers, but um, artists from dif different disciplines. And all of those people were from either Africa or from the diaspora. So there was um, uh, Wales Bonner, who's a Jamaican British uh, designer and she designed some of the Dior silhouettes that were reinterpreted for the show and the wax print itself Dior um, collaborated with a studio in Ivory Coast called Uniwax and um, the whole idea was that they would take sort of Dior codes and things that were present in their designs and reproduce them in the wax um, in wax techniques. So the head wraps that myself and Daniela were asked to design, um, we knew it was going to be in a huge space. So I designed um, like a, a mini collection ranging from a small headdress using wax. And there are some examples here that you guys can have a look at. And onto um, headbands as well. So what Maria Grazia wanted, um, and Maria Grazia is the... Uh, creative director at Dior was um, a headband really that any woman could could wear so whether they were black white wherever they were from they could just put on this headdress and that's what they actually ended up choosing from the designs that I I um, made thanks Kaya um, so yeah my name is Christine Mahando and um, my brand, my clothing brand is called Chichia. Um, I'm originally from Tanzania, grew up in London, and um, um, the whole kind of context of my brand was, um, my yeah, my basically because I'm, I'm from Tanzania, I was born in Tanzania and grew up in London, I wanted to create a brand that illustrated both cultures. And um, I used, I use a lot of the fabrics from East Africa within my collections. So today I'm gonna to talk about the Kanga fabric, which is a very um, local fabric used by local women in East Africa, um, coastal women. And so this is the, the fabric itself, a rectangular piece of fabric. So usually it comes in this form. And as you can see, there's some writing, some text on the Kanga. 
And usually, um, all the kangas, most majority of the kangas, they have the texts on it. And so for my presentation today, I'm going to concentrate on the meaning behind the text. Um, usually, obviously, with sort of fabrics, you'd think that women would be buying, or people would buy the fabric because of the beautiful print. But generally, East African women, um, they don't buy the fabric because of the, the prints. They mostly focus on the text behind the cloth. So when they, when they purchase, the local women, when they are purchasing the, purchasing the fabric, they would look at the, the, what the writing says before they actually look at the actual print itself. And um, a lot of times the fabric, the, um, the text is usually like a proverb. It could be a song, lyrics from a song. It could be something that's happening kind of in pop culture or politi political statement. So, um, but most, usually, most of the time it's a proverb and it, it would have like a like hidden meaning and um, yeah, so for for us, us Tanzanian women, East African women, most of the time, we'd, you know, we would go to the markets or we'd go to the shops and purchase the fabric based on what the what the saying is behind it. Um, so for yeah, so um, within my collections, I've explored this a lot um, in different ways, and so I've created. Um, garments where I've really looked at the communication side of of the um, the actual kanga, and um, a lot of times when I even I go and do shopping, I would go to the you know kanga manufacturers and I would say, okay, I, I really want um, to, I really want the the kangas that have the writing that's kind of a bit more interesting, and I always incorporate the writing within my collections, so. That's the that's the kind of side of me of the, the actual fabric that's the most interesting. <laughs> Sorry, it's really hard to like maneuver with everything. <laughs> yeah. So um so yeah, so if you look at the screen, there's some some examples of the um collections and um yeah, so I for me, you know, the actual fabric itself is kind of is known as the 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 writing, the text of the kanga is known as the spine of the kanga. So um it's very much, you know, if there's if there's no writing and you see a, a, bit, a beautiful piece of cloth and it's in that rectangular, it's it feels like there's it's not saying anything. So with the writing, a lot of times it could be a message. It could be you know the message could be, um, it could be a positive message. It could be something that you're trying to communicate to someone. So if you if you if you're giving it as a gift, so a lot of times these, these fabrics are given as gifts, and um, it, you know if you if there's a wedding or if there's a I don't know, even a death in the family, you can give like a condolence kanga, you can give like a celebration kanga. And sometimes um, if you have like a, if you maybe you have like a lot of times if they're like neighbors that are feuding or people like are, that you're feuding with, um, sometimes someone will go and buy a kanga and then you would wear it around the person that they don't like to kind of <laughs> give them this message. And it's not really about the print, it's about whatever the message is on the kanga. So usually those kind of kangas are not, they're not, um, given as a gift, but you'd kind of, you'd wear it around the person and then they would know, oh, this message is, you know, they, they you know, they mean business. So I really like the idea of kind of that communication. So within my own collections, we've also developed our own prints and I always make sure that I have my own sayings within the kanga. And um, it's always loads of fun, kind of the communication side. 
Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, so thank you, Christine. Again, at the end, if you hold any questions, <laughs> questions to the end of the discussion. Um, so we move on to Taleka Kirkland. And Taleka, you're from, um, you are of Bahamian heritage. Jamaican. No, Jamaican. Okay, sorry. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember. Anyway, don't worry. Um, and um, Taleka is the director of the Costume Institute of the African Diaspora and is so knowledgeable. I'm really happy that you could join us um, this evening. You're one of the first people years and years ago I know started to kind of really delve into textiles. Um, so thank you so much. And so you're looking at um, defining self-identity and social status in African and Caribbean com communities through textiles. Yeah, um, so that's that title sounds a bit um, woolly and possibly a bit vague, but basically what I'm really talking about is how to define material culture through fabric. Now, material culture is the anything that determines who you are and how you came to be and the history of a people through whatever it is, whether it be artifacts, pots, pans, paintings. I'm using fabric as those remnants of material culture, as those items of material culture that identify who people are, where they're from, and how they then self-determine. And so what's really lovely is I feel like I'm a child in a sweet shop right now because of all these amazing fabrics on this table. Um, and I really wanted to... I thank you so much, Christine, for talking about the kanga because the kanga is so important in terms of how people have chosen to identify their political standpoint through their cloth. But actually, all of these cloths have some form of political standpoint. And as people of darker skin, because of history, everything then that we engage with then becomes political, unfortunately. However, that politicization of our skin and therefore of our engagement with anything doesn't mean that we cannot enjoy whatever it is we're engaging with and doesn't mean that those things then don't help us self-determine. And it's the self-determination that becomes incredibly important. So we start waffling and start with the madras. I'm not going to say too much because I don't want to take over Fiona's thing. But um, in terms of... In, I just want to speak specifically about the politics. In terms of politicization, Madras has come through, is, is essentially a remnant of the British Empire. Now, if you know anything about the British Empire, then you know that um, Britain colonized two thirds of the world um, and a lot of the Caribbean, North and South America was colonized by Britain and um, large swathes of Europe. Madras being a remnant of Scottish involvement Indian involvement and being taken into the Caribbean and North America then becomes a political statement and a political ideology of how to then determine yourself. And why it becomes so incredibly important is that in the Caribbean itself, when I'm running around the Caribbean from island to island trying to get people to tell me about their engagement with the fabric, I'm realizing, just a very, very small, small anecdote, I'm realizing that within the Caribbean there is an argument between islands as to who identifies with Madras and who doesn't, because everyone does not have a Madras history, right? Everyone does not have a Madras history, but some of them feel like they should because Madras is the thing that has tied a lot of the Caribbean together. 
Now, once you understand the politics of just that alone, then to go on to start talking about Bogolonfini, which is mud cloth, to go on to talk about um, the bits of fabric that contain uh, pitchy patchy, to go on to talk about the indigo, to go on to talk about the kanga, Ooh, we've got so much that we could actually say about our own material cultures and the things that have determined black involvement. Now, when you really, really break these things down and you look back into history and what's been written about black people, it's been understood if you just take the history books on their surface value that black people have no history, we have no, um, we have no way of determining ourselves. There is so much, this is like a tiny, tiny little, tiny, tiny little fraction of what there is to determine who we are. So that's the, that's the politics. There's just a small, small bit of politics in the Caribbean over this. So moving on to the Bogolanfini, the mud cloth. Now understanding how the development of the mud cloth happened in Mali and through the western parts of Africa over into the northern parts of Africa and how then that practice is trying to be erased out, started to be erased out and the people who are so desperately trying to hold on to that practice and to pass it on to the young people. Now this is part of the fight. I haven't even told you about the institute. Oh my God, there's so much to say. Okay, so so this is part of the, this is part of the work that we do in the institute. Is really trying to get young people to re-engage with their cultural heritage and re-engage with their material cultures. Because of course, when we have beautiful things like this, if the young people don't pick it up and run with it, then it's lost. Okay. Right? It becomes very lost and it's it's painful. It's very very painful because what will then happen is the grandchildren of the children now will look back on a, a book or a, a internet and be like, what happened to this? Where is this? I want to just move quickly onto this because um, a lot of people that I speak to try and um, try and say, but you know, if we're from the Caribbean, we understand we had African heritage a long time ago, but Africa and the Caribbean are so very different, so very far apart. We've got nothing to do with each other. No, right? Let me let me just take this um, as an example. In varying islands of the Caribbean, Jamaica, um, Bahamas, Grenada. And I think as well, um, parts of the Mokojambi in Trinidad as well, there is a, a character called Pichipachi. Now, Pichipachi is very reminiscent of the Egungun in West Africa. Now, if you understand anything about the Egungun in West Africa, which comes from um, Yoruba culture, the Egungun is the manifestation of your ancestors, right? So the manifestation of your ancestors, understanding that and understanding that African retentions that have then carried on through the Caribbean have taken whatever they could, which was bits of fabric, bits of, of straw, bits of whatever they could get their hands on and try and retain the same thing. You put the agungun and you put the pitchy-patchy right next to each other. I defy you to try and tell me it's not the same thing. Yeah. I defy and we, you. we call this um, sensei. Right, well. right. Um, we could go on, on and, and on. On and on. You see, I'm sorry. I'm so <laughs> this you, this is why you can't on. get hold of but me. You know, I've got I so much you. to say. <laughs> I'm so um, sorry, that's everybody. It. That's it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, we're gonna come back. We're gonna come back to all of that. So we want to leave some, you know, some of this for the discussion afterwards. Future notice. Uh, um, I'm not uh, talking after <laughs> you. I feel, so I feel hype. Fiona like. Compton, Know Your Caribbean, you've run a fantastic platform, which, you know, kind of uh, collates wonderful archival imagery. Uh, you're going to talk a little bit about um, Madras. We have very similar um, backgrounds. You're from St. Lucia, I'm from Dominica. So, yes, Madras. Okay, hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for coming. I feel really inspired by the turnout. 
And you know, for people who dressed up and tied their hair, and even all of you came after work as well. I know we all tired Tuesday night. Um, yeah, I like your talk, like how you speak so passionately, is mirrors how I feel. Um, Madras, I didn't know. I grew up in St. Lucia, and Madras was very important, or is, was very much something part of my childhood growing up. It's something that you wore when it was like a very important occasion or celebrating like St. Lucian culture. You wore your Madras outfit, like what's on the screen here. But it's only a few years ago, like maybe past three years ago, I really understood the history of Madras, like you were saying. And the reason why we use the image that you saw that was promoting the event with our lovely Tanya here, um, that's not there, um, is that because Madras is the thing that really does tie the Caribbean to Africa, and it really does speak about our history. As you were saying, is that the if you look at the print, it's very reminiscent of Scottish tartan prints. So that's speaking about you know the European colonization, and then the fact that they went to India and decided to work with the cloth workers um, in Madras, which is called Chennai now, Chennai. right? So that's where the name comes from. So it comes from formerly known as Madras India, and he started working with the cloth factories and was brought across to Africa by Portuguese traders. And then when they got to, to West Africa, it was used as a method of trading during the slave trade, and it became a very much, a very valued um, type of fabric. So you can even find within parts of West Africa, within Nigeria, within I think the Igbos and them, they use Madras as well. I didn't know that. You know, I think every time it's like, in St. Lucia, growing up, it's like we never really saw any prints from Africa. Um, it's only now because it's become fashionable. But we were never, never, never exposed to it. Even the African print that comes to St. Lucia or to the Caribbean now, I think, is very commercialized. We have no concept, no clue where it comes from, really. We just call everything African print, and you just wear it to be Afrocentric and whatever, but have no context about all the different um, regions or anything. But yeah, so basically when the enslaved were brought across, you know, they were not allowed to wear, they had a slave uniform, which was very basic, kind of um, the cheapest, most basic cloth. Um, but on a Sunday, when they had their days off, they'd use the money that they saved up to buy a nice piece of fabric to dress up and feel good about themselves. And that's why Madras became so revered and cherished. And that's how um, it became a part of our culture. So you wear it on special occasions. So this is why Madras really very much reflects the history of the Caribbean in its entirety. Um, also, you know, enslaved women were not allowed to, they had the Tion law, which was you're not allowed to um, show your hair because they just felt like I think I say our hair is too powerful, so you have to kind of cover it up and tame it and whatever. But you know, as we do, we become innovative when we are oppressed. Is we become innovative and we made we decided to become creative with how we tied our hair and made it something beautiful. That's something people are trying to copy now. So this is this is the history of Madras. I think it's a really beautiful history, and I think especially that we still to this day wear it on special occasions. Um, I love these images of women in Guadeloupe um, wearing what we call the wobduet, and you wear it on special occasions, and you can see them um, wearing the Madras. So this, these photographs are from like the late 1800s, early 1900s. So this is a very special occasion. They're going to have their portrait <laughs> taken. So what do they wear? They wear their wobduet, they wear the Madras, and I think it's a really beautiful um, reflection of our history and how we kind of 
make it make it uh, it's very ceremonial and I think it's very something that's very special how we make this effort to dress up to tie your hair to wear all of this fabric and adorn yourself um, and I just think it's a beautiful thing so that's that Right, finally, um, Arietta Muje, who's a fashion expert, uh, an African fashion consultant. Um, you're going to talk about rediscovering traditional fabrics yeah. that are disappearing, which I think is a really yeah. important thing to, to cover. Yeah, thank you guys so much for being here. And um, just to continue from what our lovely uh, friend from the CIAD was talking about, about fabrics being identity. And... Uh, when you think of African, African fabrics, the first thing most people think about is Ankara or wax, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that has been adopted by Africans. It's not a traditional African fabric. Mm -hmm. So what you have is that the continent is saturated with that fabric, that traditional artisans who make mud clots, who make ashoki, who make tie-dye, they're dying out. So what has happened over the last few years is that um, as we have adopted that uh, wax cloth, there are weddings every weekend in Nigeria, for example, in West Africa. In one weekend, there could be like, I don't know, across the continent of Africa, there could be up to a million weddings where everybody's going there dressed in the same fabric or dressed in the same print. So what has happened is that these people have then been forced out of the market because there's no demand for their products. Uh, a new school of, a new generation of uh, fashion designers across Africa have made it their sole purpose to revive the use of these materials. And one of the designers who uh, has done so was nominated for the LVH, LVMH prize this year. His name is Kenneth Easy. And what he's done is taken this traditional ashoki and he's just made it very wearable. Traditionally, this fabric is mostly used for um, uphold, upholstery, but now a lot of people are making products uh, from it. Um, this is, again, the Bogolon, made in Mali, and it's weaved on a special loom of weavers. So what happens here is that um, a community of women are making this, uh, and now um, they've got people backing them to produce in a bit more volume than they have done in a long time. Just as you uh, would see with any sort of uh, artisanry, if we don't invest in those skills, those skills die. A lot of African and black uh, skills are all done, uh, passed around via oral history. So a lot of stuff is not being documented. So a lot of governments now are trying to put in place uh, archiving because a lot of people don't archive either. So we'll be able to talk about uh, textiles and fabrics which are truly African going forward. And just wanted to show you that over there. It's known as uh, Batakari. President of Ghana has solely brought this back because he's always wearing this now. It's called a fugu, and this is, we've seen an uplift in the demand for fugu since the presidents and cool kids have been wearing this stuff recently. We also have the tie and dye. So there's two kinds of tie and dye. This is from Guinea-Bissau. They've used stamps to make that one, and then this is from Nigeria, and it's just been the old. Um, tie uh, a stone in a knot method and dip this in dye that's come out with this indigo blues. So a lot of governments are trying their best to uh, archive fabrics and textures from the continent before it's too late because there's a generation of kids who do not know that African fabric, aka Ankara, is not traditionally from Africa. And that's a, a problem which we're trying to rectify on the continent. Thank you, Arietta.
talking. So we're going to have we're going to have about fifteen minutes now just to kind of uh, you know go over some of those um, topics we touched on. I have some very specific questions. Firstly, I wanted to just put it out to the panel. Um, if you could talk a little bit about the early memories you've got about textiles and, and materials and objects in, in your home. Um, so uh, can I start with you, Martine? Yeah. yeah. Um, for me, in terms of... Uh, so my heritage is Jamaican and Grenadian and didn't really have um, those sorts of textiles in the home um, at all. Um, certainly in terms of um, my millinery practice, I was, um, it wasn't till I studied for a while and explained to my mum I wanted to become a milliner. She was really reticent about it. She's really concerned. And then I made her a straw hat, which she absolutely loved. And she burst into tears. And I thought, well, that's quite strange. It wasn't really that nice a hat, but there you go. And then she revealed to me that her mother, who had passed away when she was eight years old, had always wanted to become a milliner. So, and in um, her native Grenada, she would take palm straw from a bush outside her house and dry it, plait it into straw braid and make hats. So it's like, it's sort of in the DNA and I, I didn't know that. So it sort of has just sort of come, come through and I was lucky enough a few years ago to go to Grenada and still some of my family there do plait the straw. So I'd be really, what you were saying about um, these methods dying out, it's very unpopular now to do that work. It's hard work, it sort of strips your hand. So I'd be really interested in future in trying to sort of develop those techniques and keep them going because they're sort of dying out in, in Grenada. So that's one memory. Um, early memories for you? Um, my early memories, um, back in the days, um, where I grew up in Nigeria, um, I would see my family um, tying the head wraps. I said, what's this for? Most of them, when they're going now, uh, or when they're going to party, you see them having the head wrap on them. I said, oh, why are you, you always tie, you always pull um, the head wrap? One day my mom told me, you woman, you need to pull it to make you look beautiful whenever you're going now. I said, it's all right. So when I grew up, my mom just bought me one and just tied on me. I said, oh, and look at this in the mirror. I said, this is beautiful. I said, now I'll be, you know, wrapping my hair. Then, then, this, the, the, then I think a month after we have a party, family party, my mom now bought the ashoki. This, this is called ashoki, top clothes for um, ceremony. And he said, it's for, it's, um, family is uniform for the family. And I said, you need to have yours on. I said, do you think this will fit me? He said, yeah. And I said, okay. Just wrap it, and I just landed from there. Say wrapping for my sisters, wrapping. Then later, then I went to um, a one um, their designer, wrap designer, to learn it more. Then I started wrapping from there. And I go to events here now. I wrap for people, and so many occasions, so many events, um, birthday, wedding, um, special occasions. 
They invite me in, I go there, then I rap for them. That's it. Thank you. Um, for me, um, my early early memories of the Kanga was being when whenever I had a relative or yeah a relative coming over from Tanzania coming to London or whenever my parents went over, would always I'd always receive some fabric as a gift, and um, it was always kind of like oh yeah you know like when you're kind of trying to be cool and growing up in London you kind of see the fabric and. I just always used to kind of put it aside thinking, oh, well, you know, my relatives has given me this bit of fabric and I didn't really know what to do with it. And um, I think it's just when I became maybe my 20s, once I started studying fashion, um, I traveled to Tanzania and I started, we all, yeah, people kind of wore these fabrics at home. It was very much something that you just wore at home and never really would never go outside you would never dare be seen outside in this fabric and it was always kind of like you just wear it if you're you know just relaxing at home or using to yeah just basically just something that you never really imagined that you can make it into anything special and um, I started learning a bit more about the fabric itself as I kind of I got older and I, I just looked into the history of it and I just became I fell in love with it and um yeah, so for me, it was something, at first, it was something that I was a little bit embarrassed about or uh, something that I was never really, I, th I never really thought I could show off. And then it, it kind of, once I read, you know, read into it a bit more and I really loved the whole idea of kind of the messages behind the fabric and how unique it was to just my culture and my East African-ness. And being in London, I decided that I really wanted to have it, this fabric, um, and make it into something a bit more special. So I, yeah, so I decided to kind of create my collections around that. So it just went from being a bit something that was, that I didn't take too seriously to something that I fell in love with and I saw that it, that it had so much depth behind it. So my earliest memory um, of textiles and fabric and clothing is actually being stabbed with pins. Um, when I was probably about three, four, five, right up until I was about 11. Um, and that's because my mum used to make all of my clothes. And I, I quickly realised that actually clothes making was the thing that ran throughout my family. So my, my great-grand, my great-aunt made my grand's clothes, my grand made my mum's clothes, my mum made my clothes, I make clothes. And it just became one of those things that it's something you do. Fabric was around all the time. It wasn't something I was... Um, not used to seeing, but something that I always remember <laughs> hearing my, from my, my gran was, Nabada, don't let me good scissors! <laughs> and that's because I used to, I wasn't allowed to touch or use any of the fabrics, but I used to try and, I mean, this is going back some time, I'm quite old, but this is going back some time when you used to um, put paper clothes on little cutouts of paper dolls. And so I used to try and cut out paper clothes out of, with the good scissors, with, out of, um, th that I'd drawn out of paper. And um, then I understood, then I became, I started to understand that, okay, there's certain scissors that you have to use for certain fabric because the way you cut fabric has got to be sharp enough not to ruin the fat. Okay, and it's, you know, things like that started to filter in through my knowledge. And I think having that running through my maternal DNA 
um, and my dad's mom used to make clothes. And I, I, I realized the uh, apprenticeship history of um, Jamaican clothing manufacture was something that was so massively prevalent in the history of the Caribbean anyway, and certainly in the history of Jamaica, that it, it's, it sparked my interest even more. You know, and just kind of growing up around all of this anyway was a bit like, well, obviously that's what you do because that's what everyone else did, so why not? Okay. Um, when you said it again, took by pin, it gave me a flashback because I grew up in Senegal, she didn't buy school uniforms. You go by the seamstress to get it made, yeah. right? So that just brought me way back right there. But um, I can even smell like the lady's house. Just, it just, yeah, single sewing machine is true. But I would say, outside of the whole school uniform thing, um, for my fondest memory of textiles is actually with Carnival um, because. Now, it's like you just go to a carnival mass band, you pay your money and you get your costume, right? A few people go to the mass camp and assist in making the costumes, but back in the day, they used to give you a piece of paper and tell you, go buy butter and buy this shoe, go buy white lemon and buy six yards of this silver fabric, go and, and you'd make your costume yourself. Butter. But, yes, I brought you back. <laughs> Butter still exists in Lagos. Well, you see, but you see, that's a common thread we have right there, the butter shoe, right? So I think with that, and like still, still remembering the smell of the glue gun and glue burning your hand and that, that kind of stuff. So I think that with textiles and like the smell of a mask camp walking in and you seeing all the things on the wall and feathers there and piece of cloth there and, and bra there and people come and take your measurements. That's my fondest memories with textiles. Um, my fondest memory or my earliest memories of textiles is, was my mom getting ready to go to a meeting. Now, I don't know about if this happens in the Caribbean, but African women love a meeting. Oh God, <laughs> Every Saturday, they, and they call colors. They'll be like, color this weekend, it's this color. Oh, we're going to a funeral. Make sure you wear the ubigo, it's black. And so I used to wonder why, uh, you know, she always had to change going to these meetings, but... There was one time she had come to London and we were so excited, my sister may remember, that my mom had come back, opened up the suitcase, it was fabric. I'm like, is this all you bought from London? And why would you go to London to buy African fabric? <laughs> it's when I realized that actually, this is where they get the fabric, but bring it back to, to Nigeria. And so the quest for me kind of started uh, then to understand a bit more about fabrics. Okay, thank you. All right, so we're going to start that side. Um, the next question before, well, we've got a couple more questions before we put it out to the audience. Um, what are the kind of similar narratives that we feel um, from all the fabrics that have been discussed? Um, are there any similar narratives that you feel um, have come about in this discussion? 100%. I mean, this madras and the Igbo tribe in, in Nigeria, so many different variations of this madras. And I think the whole idea of identity and a sense of who you are is really good because in uh, West Africa, a showke is traditionally for the uh, Yoruba people. I think the lady who is with you is, is the Yoruba lady. And she did the hat, the, a showke. It's a similar fabric to this. That's just a revamped version of this. So there's similar stories in that it helps with that identity, 100%. Like, for example, when I first met Christine, it was the fact that she used kanga 
that actually brought us together because I wanted to know what it meant. What's that saying? Is that a swear word? What's this? What's that? <laughs> and I think the different tribes, uh, different fabrics mean it's a, it's a source of identity for them. Um, I think, yeah, definitely agree. I think also because you touched on the, like, the masquerade and stuff like that because that's like a, a version of like the solution masquerade. You say it's like the sensei. So it's like sensei is actually, it's from Ghana. It's a Twi word. Please forgive me, I'm not saying it correctly, but right. But um, it, it means ruffle feathers, um, and it's, it's a sacred spirit. And when you look at the St. Lucian masquerade, like the Pyburn and all these kind of things, it is like literally like a mirror image of a lot of, not just Nigerian, but in Benin, in Burkina Faso, mm -hmm. in Mali, the masquerade is like equal. Um, but also in terms of when you're talking about with the Kanga, talking about um, sending messages and stuff like that. So I'm wearing like the tetele, which is, it's like, it's supposed to show like your, your status. So you know the vibe, right? So basically it's like one peak means you're single, two means you're spoken for. The third one, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it depends on which island, that's it. Because it says the third one is either you're like uh, divorced or widowed. But then I've heard different, and if, if you have four peaks, it means anything goes. So you can <laughs> slide in the DMs right there, right? I, so, I don't know about that one, but <laughs> <laughs> so so they, that's showing um, it's showing like your status without actually announcing it. Mm -hmm. But even when you look at Suriname. Suriname's traditional way is called the Kotomisi. And within the Kotomisi, they send all kinds of messages, mm -hmm. secret messages. It, it, same thing, like if they don't like you, they come, they'll tie it, they, um, tie it and wear the thing in a certain way and come and stand, stand up by you. Or if it is, they try and say, yo, meet me tonight later, kind of thing like that. Yeah. So, and, but it's also, it's, it's in, and to kind of, um, it's also very rebellious as well. You know, because, you know, black women, um, when you look at, when you look at slavery and like the legacy that's left behind, mm. it's like, you know, the way that we take so much care in ourselves in kind of presenting ourselves, tying our hair and making it like um, very celebratory. I think it's, it's very rebellious because you are trying to keep us down in a certain way and then we come out even more glorious. Yeah. And I think, yeah, so I, and I love, I love how you can send messages through how you tie your hair through the masquerade and everything like that. And it's, it's a beautiful thing that within the masquerade, it's like I didn't know, but then it's like when I started to YouTube different masquerade, especially within West Africa, I'm like, this is a mirror image of what I grew up knowing. And all of that has to do with fabric and textile and movement yeah. and music. So, right. Fantastic. The next two questions are going to... Um uh, direct the first one at you, but I would also I'm going to hand the mic over to the audience to get involved with the conversation. So you, I'd love to know your thoughts on um, how commercial companies or bodies reference African fabrics. Um, so, what are your thoughts on, on refer referencing African fabrics in a commercial context? Um, I'll talk really in the context of these. Um, collaboration with Dior, it's certainly something when I was initially approached about it, certainly I feel when sort of large, well-known designers have used African fabrics, there's never been any sort of reference to its Africanness. It's almost, I won't name designers, but um, it's like the idea has just sort of come out of an egg and whoop, there it is. And even in terms of, uh, you know, there's been no reference to where it's come from. Even in terms of the shows, there's been no 
um, sense of the diversity. So if you look at the the the, the models wearing the clothes, for me personally, it just sort of mm, mm, jarred and made me feel uh, quite uncomfortable. So it was quite interesting in this context that straight off the bat we had this discussion about um, cultural appropriation. And I know that um, um, there's a video that one of the models that worked in the sh walked in the show, she's Nigerian, and um, yes, and she straight away was like, before I walk in the show, I, I want to, what is this about? And really get to the bottom of it. So it was really refreshing for me, I think, to see um, a designer in a house like tackling that head on. I know she was she was quite surprised that Maria Gratz was like, yep, okay, bring it on, let's have this this um, discussion. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, just out to the audience, anybody wanting to comment on that, about referencing African textiles, anyone? No. Um, so we do have that video, but we've just run out of time. But um, just come and see us afterwards if you want any more information on anything we've discussed. Um, final question um, is just talking about the future of textile production. Um, you know, when we started to kind of pull the themes of this talk together, we talked about, um, you know, the kind of um, concerns around Dutch wax and how things are sourced. Um, versus indigenous textiles. Um, so that I'd like, um, Chris, Christine, if you wouldn't mind just kind of coming in, weighing in on this a bit um, about, you know, how fabrics are sourced and your thoughts on, the, on that. Um, I, I guess it's just kind of con continuing with, the co with a conversation of appropriation and um, in terms of preserving some of the history and uh, identity and the stories behind the fabrics. Um, it's always really important to know for just a lot of research to go behind the fabrics and the, to make sure that it's all kind of preserved before the, before the ideas are taken on. So it's really important to just kind of keep the referencing and to just maintain maintain the history and to respect there's a certain level of respect um so it's um, for me i don't have a problem with the fabrics being kind of used and and the influence to be taken and to be kind of moved along you know the story to be continued and to you know to have their own i, I don't know just add if they want to add their own aspect to it but it's very much it's really important to be able to reference and and to preserve the history and to yeah so for me, yeah, it's quite nice to kind of see how when when the fabrics and the textiles are used and, and made new in a new way, it's always really important to know, what, do they know where it's come from? And to kind of just keep that going. Yeah. Um, so Dutch wax, the whole, the whole issue with Dutch wax is very interesting because um, the, I can't remember the name, what they're called? Thank you. Um, Vlisco have their own factories in Holland and um, they have their own designers as well and they have their own archives as well. And it's really important to understand that they have people that go out and study the African market and study Africans and study what Africans like and study the colours and study the history and study everything. And when you understand that, then you also then understand what you have to do 
as a person of African heritage or what African designers need to do to ensure their own heritage and ensure the um, safety of their own intellectual property. Intellectual property being, you know, your own original design. So um, thinking about how those designs are then preserved and then move forward, it's really about young designers, people who are coming up, and actually the older designers as well, being able to archive what they've got, always make sure they um, preserve what they've got and make sure that they are utilizing it. You're absolutely right in that um, top level, high level designers will often use anything on this table and more and never reference never acknowledge where it's coming from. And that really is the issue that I speak about all the time with all of my students about cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation wouldn't be such an issue if you just said, actually, this is a kanga and it comes from Tanzania and it's from these people and this is what it's about, you know? But I think when we're talking about future, fashion, fashion forward and future forward and thinking forward with designs, that's really what needs to happen. We can't just willy-nilly pick up stuff and just run with it because there's always going to be someone who's got more money, more access, more um, able to put out more information about what is right here. We have to be able to, which is actually what Kayad is trying to do as well, um, make sure that we have scholarship and make sure that we have academia around this thing so that anybody who's out there, top level, whatever, you know, who's out there, it's not able to just pick it up like we don't exist, like it's not necessary, like we don't need to be thought about, like we're not, we're not important. Actually, we've been here for millennia doing this, right? So, yeah, let me not get on my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Are there any further questions from the audience before we wrap up? None at all? Oh, sorry. Can you hand her this mic, please? Thank you. Um, sorry, it was just to your um, point about cultural appropriation and giving credit. Is it enough to give credit or should they be giving back and bringing opportunities to that community? With, with, with credit comes that as well. So when I say acknowledge, I'm, just not, I'm not just saying, oh, yeah, this is a, this is a kangaroo and, you know, it's from Tanzania thanks, I'll go about my business and make hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, you can't do that when a community that you're taking the information from is um, in need of development, in need of infrastructure, in need of just actually recompense and remuneration, right? I think, I think morally, you ha anyone who is taking, the, these top-level designers who are taking this information has a moral um, a responsibility to give back to these people that they're taking these things from. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that's kind of un, unsaid, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what I mean. Thank you. Um, so thank you so much to the panelists, really. I think it, you know, we've had a really fantastic discussion. We could have gone on um, a lot longer and more in depth, but you know, we start to scratch the surface and each time we do one of these events, Hopefully, we unpick a little bit more. Um, thank you for coming, really. Um, really, as um, you know, as you said, I'm just really astounded by the turnout, so it's really great. And yeah, thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Now Gallery podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and would love to see you at one of our events soon. Go to nowgallery.co.uk to find out more. And if you like the podcast, be sure to follow us.